Welcome everyone and you're listening to my first episode on Monty Meets. It's about me interviewing sports stars from a range of different sports and in fact it could be anyone. And my first guest today is Matthew Hogarth, a good friend of mine who um, in fact is only one of the very few cricketers to take a hat-trick in test cricket. And so I'd like to introduce you um, to my special guest Matthew Hogarth. Thank you for joining Monty Meets. Monty, I'm absolutely excited to death about being here. Well, there's a touch of, I think, sarcasm there, <laughs> obviously. So, okay, so let's let's go back. Let's go back 2004, April, morning of the Test match in Barbados. Did you think he was going to take a hat-trick? Obviously, Monty. I woke up every day thinking I'm going to take a hat-trick. No, not at all. Uh, again, West Indies, brilliant place to play cricket. We... Played very well up until then. We had a great bowling attack and things just clicked, didn't they? Now we're lucky to get a few wickets. And I think we got four quick wickets that ripped the heart out of the um, the, the West Indies side. But it's it's a rare achievement, is that? Have you ever got a hat-trick, Monty? Been a couple of times close, but never got a hat-trick myself. What was that feeling like when Freddie took that catch for you, that <laughs> special catch? Yeah, it was amazing. A little story about that. that um, my first wicket was Ramnara Shawan. It was a half volley that he just was lazy, didn't move his feet and snicked it to Ashley Giles in the gully. Um, then he walked Shivnarayan Shandapur. And he'd been bane of our backsides for a long time because he was like the crab. He couldn't, we couldn't get him out. Um, and the first ball, left-hander, swung it into him, pitched on, taking middle of the leg, umpire gave it out. And then in walked um, Ryan Hines. And I thought, Do you know what, another left-hander, fantastic. I'm going to swing it back in, get him LBW or bold. And I was a little bit excited because I was on a hat-trick. So I run in a little bit too quick. I lost my action. I pulled out of it a little bit too early. Instead of swinging it back in and getting him LBW, it went across him. And he snicked it to Freddie. So I think he thought I was going to try and swing it back in. I thought I was going to try and swing it back in. But it didn't. I did got it completely wrong. And he snicked it to Freddie. And then, as Simon Jones um, described me, I went off like a demented yeti. So, um, Hoggy, um, 12 wickets at Joburg against South Africa. You single-handedly won that test match for England. <laughs> now you're talking rubbish, Monty. Um, not at all. Uh, I got five wickets in the first innings, and I bowled like a, um, a sack of spanners. Uh, I got five for that. I went for 100 and odd, I think. Uh, I'd never bowled well at the ball ring. I played there a few times for the free state. And it was one of them sort of like bogey grounds where I thought, do you know what? This is one ground that I've never bowled well at. And then in the second innings, after Trez had smashed the ball to all parts and scored a magnificent 100 and gave us a chance to declare it and to have enough runs to, to bowl South Africa out, because we could have lost that if it hadn't been for Trez. Um, uh, Graham Smith had hit his head in the morning, so he wasn't opening the batting. So um, I think they sent Butter Dippin or AB de Villiers out to open the bat. And it was one of them days that everything just clicked. And instead of playing and missing people, playing and edging, Jack Callis' first ball was um, sort of like the, the the most important wicket for me in that in that um, spell. The Jack Callis came in and he played the immaculate forward defensive. Didn't chase the ball, didn't do anything wrong, and it took the outside edge and Trez caught it a slip. And that just sort of like summed up that spell of bowling that everybody played and edged it or missed it and it hit the pads or it, it bowled them. So yeah, every dog has its day, and mine was in Joba. Well, you say that every dog has its day. I think there was another day for you, particularly at Trent Bridge, the special shot you hit 
towards extra cover against Brett Lee. That must have been one of the, probably the most important shot of your lifetime. Yeah, as you know, Monty, those batters, the bat down the lower end, we're unrecognised, aren't we? We we know how good we are with the bat. Um, so uh, I've got a 13-year-old son, and lockdown has taught him that when I'm picking on him, he'll, he goes to me, Daddy, how long did you play cricket for? And I'll say, oh, about 20 years, Ernie. And he says, one shot. That's all you remembered for, one shot out of 20 years. <laughs> I think, yeah, yeah, that's quite a good good insult. But yeah, the waiting part of that Trent Bridge was the the worst bit because you had to watch other people try and, try and bat. And the more the wickets went down, the more I started dropping my shopping and was really nervous. Um, but to go walk out onto that pitch, it was like everything stood still and it was all right then, it's in your hands, Hoggy. And it was, do you know what? This is why you do all the hard yards. This is why you train so much. This is why you have all the throwdowns in the nets um, for moments like this. And I went out and Brett Lee was either trying to kill me or he was trying to bowl me a Yorker. And he got one of them Yorkers wrong and bowled me a full toss outside the off stump, which I've absolutely creamed through the covers. And if it hadn't been for the 4,000 fans at the Radcliffe Road Strand, all going... <laughs> The ball would have never reached the boundary, but yeah, it was um, one of them rare things. Michael Vaughan nearly fell off the balcony when I hit that four through the covers because he'd been playing cricket with me for 15 years and never seen me hit a four through the covers once. Well, that, that, I think that's hilarious. Did you, did you guys play club cricket together? Because you, you played um, your club from in the Brad, Bradford League. Yeah, Bradford League. No, I didn't play with Michael Vaughan. Um, I played my club cricket with James Middlebrook. Um, in the opposition was Paul Hutchison, um, so we had quite a, str- a strong, strong um, contingents from from Bradford, uh, Bradford League, from from Pudsey. Um, but the likes of Gareth Batty, who's our area, he played for Bingley. Um, but yeah, there was a lot of strength in the Yorkshire leagues, especially around Pudsey and and, and Bradford. And yeah, so it, it, that old you know saying, if Yorkshire cricket is strong, England cricket is strong. Um, would you still agree with that statement? I just look at Rui, he's scoring all the runs, isn't it? Um, I think Yorkshire, because it's a big county, there's a lot of talent that is identified out of there. So if if Yorkshire have a good good cricket team, you have to be good to get in there. So I think uh, it, uh, there's a little bit of truth to, to the fact, yes. Yeah, so let, let's go, you know, 2005, you know, you guys become these Ashes heroes, these legends, and a, a lot of the players gave a huge credit to Duncan Fletcher. Duncan Fletcher had this system where he was a CEO and they had the directors underneath him. Is that the right way to sort of, um, you know, phrase Duncan Fletcher's coaching style? Yeah, I think Duncan Fletcher was a great um, innovator of his time. He he was a great philosopher, he was a great thinker of the game. Um, I think his man management skills were a little bit lacking. Um, I think NASA Hussein, when they both came together, um, NASA had to take a, an England squad with Duncan Fletcher from not liking the physical elements of things to being fitter, stronger, wiser. Um, central contracts came in, which helped. And Duncan Fletcher, I think, was instrumental in a lot of that. And he was fantastic for us. And I think the biggest change came when Michael Vaughan took over as captain because as NASA wasn't a, 
a people person at times. He, I mean, if you ball a bad ball, he'd kick the dirt, throw his hat on the floor. Uh, wasn't that great of getting the best out of his players, so to speak. Don't get me wrong. I'm not. I'm not having a go at Nasser. He's a great man, but his man management skills were, were not as good. And then Michael Vaughan took over, and I think it was Michael Vaughan's leadership of he he understood his players. Um, he knew how to talk to his players in different ways and say different things to me than he would to Harmy, than he would to Freddie, than he would to you. So he, I think I've heard Steve Harmison describe him as the best liar that he's, he's ever <laughs> ever had. And I think that's quite what you need from your captain. Is when you get hit for a four, he, he didn't get angry or anything else. Um, he, he used to talk to me about monkeys in the middle of a test match. I'll be bowling against Sachin Tendulkar or somebody and I'll bowl a bad ball. And I say, Hoggy, how are the monkeys? And I say, well, they're having a bit of a bad trot because one fell off the tree last night and got eaten by the crocodiles. But the llamas are okay. And it just took me out of that intensity because my my remit was to, well, my go-to was running harder, try harder. And that I used to run in then like a headless chicken and wasn't in the correct position to bowl. So to take me out of that intensity and take me away to then put me back into it he knew how to how to get the best out of people well it's interesting you say that you know sport is a uh, especially team sport captains coaches play a huge role to get the best out of you who's probably the best coach you've worked under yeah again i got asked this question earlier and i've got a very a big soft spot for steve oldham who was our bowling coach growing up at yorkshire but i think the best um coach would be um troy cooley um, he had the we got labelled the Fab Four uh, myself, Steve Armisen, Andrew Flintoff and Simon Jones and Troy Cooley was in charge and I always go back to Troy being the best coach I've, I've played under and uh, people ask me why, what did he do and I can't tell them I can't give you a specific reason or example of why Troy was so good but he got us performing for a long period of time without coaching us he was like a friend talking to us in warm-ups and anything else. He was so clever. He coached, I mean, you, you go on these courses, good coach coaches without coaching. And that's exactly what Troy Cooley did. He coached without even making us aware that he was he's actually coaching us. But he got us performing more often than not. So, you know, 2005, you win the Ashes, uh, something no one ever expected to do. How, how did it, you know, change your life, um, uh, you know, and, uh, and and the support? Because you've mentioned that your wife has, Sarah, has been a huge support throughout your career. You say um, you didn't, nobody expected it. We expected to win the Ashes, Monty. <laughs> Pessimistic person you are. Um, but yeah, I've got to say for that summer, it changed our lives massively. We were front pages, back papers of the newspapers. We were on terrestrial TV. Everybody was watching cricket. All the sports were, other sports were watching cricket. People were stopping work to watch it. And it it was just a, a perfect storm. The the series, as I've heard described as the best series that people have watched, or one of the best series, that because there was ebbs that was flowing. There was parts, periods of every game that the any team could win um so it changed it changed the way that people thought about cricket and how excited they got about cricket and the, i think the biggest thing for me is i still get uh, get thanked for sort of 20 year olds and mid 40s for saying thank you for, for you're the reason we started playing cricket 
And that, to me, you play cricket, you play professional sport. If you can leave a legacy and inspire a generation to play cricket, which I think 2005 did, I think that was the biggest thing that happened in 2005. Yeah, you guys were you know, absolute legends. And, uh, um, you know, I remember, you know, even playing with you. And you, you, you had this knack of just making the person feel like just, you know, like, so comfortable at international cricket like you used to say to me at mid on bounce Monty bounce <laughs> bounce bounce now well, why did you say that because it helped me it helped me as a bowler because when you I thought when you bowl well you had the lovely rhythmical bounce in your run up you had the energy through your action and what, rather than trying to say technical things to you or trying to get into your head because you're a very intense person especially when you're bowling I'll try to make it fun and try to help you without being too 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 um, obvious that I was trying to do it, and it's easy coming into a successful side um, or a side that's settled. Um, I think it'd have been a lot different if you'd have come in and we'd have had a <laughs> had a history of losing. So, a lot of that is the the environment that's being created from the top down, and we had a great environment, and it it was great to welcome you and and your enthusiasm into into the side. Yeah, well, yeah, I obviously, you know, love celebrating, you know, my wickets. And uh, um, so I, I actually really enjoyed playing with you. And I think what surprised me the most was in Sri Lanka, when we toured together during the warm up match, you took five for 25. First test match, you didn't perform very well. The second you get second test match, you and Harms, Steve Harmson get dropped. Do you think that was a harsh decision by Steve Peter Moores? Yeah, that was New Zealand. Um, but I got dropped. Uh, yes and no. Um, I think we got dropped for for Stuart Broad and uh, James Anderson. Um, not not too bad a replacement, eh? And they've performed quite well over a period of time. But in the first Test match, I turned around to to Michael Vaughan and said, "I've gone." Um, I said, "I just wanted to sit down in the middle of Test match and cry." because things weren't going my way. Uh, and you know what I'm like, Monty. I'm normally the first person that will lead into the into a battle and charge my way out of it. I just wanted the ground to be swallowed up and, and sit down and cry at the end of my run-up. I'd gone mentally. Um, and I wasn't, wasn't surprised when I got dropped. Um, so it was, a, it was, I think, easier to, to drop both of us than just one of us. Um, and... And as I say, the placement that came in did a, did a great job. Yeah, you touched upon, you know, mental health and something that is so difficult to detect. It's like an invisible kind of, um, you know, something you just don't know. You can't see, you can't feel it. I played with you. I never realised you were suffering from mental health issues. Um, what were you suffering from? Yeah, again, so it was the time that Ernie was born. So it was 13 years ago. Uh Sarah had come over uh, and had brought Ernie with her, with her parents, and she didn't want to come on the plane. She had a breakdown at the airport, said, I'm not I'm not taking Ernie, I'm not going, blah, blah. We get to, she comes over to, to New Zealand, we have massive arguments, we're not happy, everything. And everything just got on top of you. Um, and then when you're... When your home life isn't good and you're under the pump and under scrutiny in the middle of a test match, uh, something's got to give. And in me, it was the the get up and fight in me, and I I lost it. I just uh, I I felt I felt like a little kid that couldn't get the ball off his dad, 
earn. All I could do was sit down and cry. And that is how I felt. Um, Peter Moores knew about it and everything. And Sarah begged me to go home. She begged me to go home and sort my family out. And I didn't. And that is the biggest mistake I have made in my career. That I didn't say to the management, look, I'm struggling. My family's struggling. I need to go home and I need to sort them out. And I didn't, and that is that's it's still still gripes me now, as you can hear. Did you have the fear of losing her? Um, no, I, I I was very selfish. I said I'm not. I, I feel like if I I'm running away from cricket, I feel like I'm I've been dropped, so I'm going home. I'm taking my bat and ball home, and I'm not that character. And I said I can't go home. I I want to fight for my place, um, which contradicts a little bit of what I just said about sitting down in the middle of the test match not being able to get the ball but I then had it was a pride issue as well that I should have gone home and sorted my life out and me personally out and my wife um, and I didn't I, I, I stayed to try and get my place back and that was counterproductive because I wasn't in the right place to try and get my place back I, well, there weren't any games to to produce to get back in the side and yeah it was just a a perfect shitstorm yeah, so it's obviously, you know, it's difficult, you know, this is a difficulty. People don't understand how difficult it is for a cricketer to tour with a young family. Um, and the other issue happened after that was um, you released a book in 2009. You got released by Yorkshire. You said some things probably not so complimentary about the ECB. Why did you say that? I said what happened. I thought it was a trick. As I say, I, I came home from New Zealand in 2008, a central contracted player. I played for England for the last nine years, um, and I didn't hear anything from them. Um, the management knew that I was suffering, um, knew that Sarah was suffering. Um, I was overlooked for selection. I wasn't selected. I wasn't phoned up. I wasn't told, asked. I didn't have anybody coming around. Hoggy, how are you doing? What? Why are you not performing? Are you okay? How's Yorkshire? But nobody came. I know sport is a cutthroat place and everything else, but we're still human beings. And nobody took the time out to, to ask. And I played for Yorkshire for two years, not in a great place at all. So didn't Yorkshire pick up on this? Or your best mate, one of your best mates, Michael Vaughan? Um not really. They 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 said things in the changing rooms and they're saying that the people that we're talking about don't even know we're talking about them. And that was aimed at me that I didn't know that there was talk because I was disruptive and I was saying things, I was doing things that were counterproductive, which I never used to do. Um, and it took uh, it took the captain at the time to basically, because we were crap, Yorkshire were getting absolutely hammered. The captain wasn't wasn't having a good time and he sat down in a and you saw the saw how he was struggling and you thought do you know what I can do something about that and it was sort of like the 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 way out of it for me was looking at other people and seeing what I could do for them rather than what I could do for myself and it it as you say I then got sacked released from Yorkshire it went from Hoggy, we want to give you a three-year contract or two-year contract, and I said no, I want a three-year contract, and that went on for the first three months, and blah blah blah, and at the end of the season, they said we haven't, we're not really new in your contract, and again, you can go down wrongful dismissal because they're supposed to tell you in the reviews and everything else, 
30 days before the season ends where everybody's doubts. So everything just seemed uh, it wasn't done in the right way. Um, so I was left then at the end of September without without a county. So do you think it was uh, ECB, the Yorkshire, who didn't realise actually Hoggy is suffering from some sort of mental health issue and he's, you know, it's he needs some support? I don't think anybody, I think my wife noticed, but again, she wasn't in a great place. It took a while for me to notice and to admit that I needed help. Um, I can remember phoning the PCA website, helpline up and saying, I need to need some help. Uh, but again, sitting down with a, a counsellor that wants to talk to you, you know me, mum, I hate talking, don't like people, and to sit next to a stranger and them asking you questions about you, I was sat there and I, do, I know what you're going to ask me, I know what you're going to say and I know what you're going to try and do. And one of the ones where we, we got asked, we got to a standoff, the, he knew, I knew that he thought that the first person to speak now has got no power in this meeting and I'm a stubborn bastard. So uh, we just sat there for the entire meeting and we didn't say a word. And you're thinking, well, this isn't helping. Um, what are you doing? Uh, just because you wanted to prove a point and say, oh, you know, I know what you're fucking doing. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not playing ball with you. I'm not speaking to you. And we didn't speak. Great counselling session, eh? <laughs> well, that's the first counselling session I've heard where you obviously, it, it is. I fully agree with you. It's difficult for someone, you know, speaking to you like that. Um so what were you really suffering from? If you have to put it in a in a sentence oh, now, looking back now, you're fit and well. You'd say depression, wouldn't you? But again, what is depression? There's a whole heap of depression and, and levels of. And as soon as you mention mental health, people run for the hills because it's taboo. It used to be taboo. Um, it used to be, I'm not getting anywhere near you, you're mental. Um, so yeah, things have got a lot better now. Um, the way that... People can openly speak out of, out, and people can step away from international sport and say, right, I need some, some time away for myself. Um, so, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, I'd say depression. Yeah, so then, yeah, the move to Leicester, Leicestershire, 2009, my under-19s coach, Tim Boone, you and both, <laughs> you know, make a good partnership. Did you ever expect to be the captain for Leicestershire? No, I met with Tim Boone, as you said, and um, oh, the CEO, whose name has gone off my head at the moment. Mr. Davidson. Yeah, no, no, he was the chairman. Um, it was David Smith, um, who was the CEO, and we met up, and it sounded brilliant. I was going to be a senior player, sat in the corner, voicing opinions, and and being a lead a senior um and on the way home they phoned me up and said hoggy we, we haven't got a captain we want you to come down and be captain and helping shape the way that things were done if they are i thought Do you know what that is fantastic um so i went down to to work with um tim boone and to um try and be a captain but again then you had issues with leaders people in authority people in leadership <laughs> now would you say you you know you have a, some sort of issue with people who are in leader and authority because if you don't respect them, you suddenly shut off. <laughs> um, I, I know that I don't like rules and I don't like people, but the Neil Davidson incident wasn't my fight. I, I had no issues with Neil Davidson whatsoever. 
Um, I went down as captain. He was nice. We went down to his house. We went out for meals together. Um, he then started questioning team selection, um, and he apparently had been doing it for a long time. Uh, and Tim Boone asked me if we could ask the board to stop him interfering with cricket matters as a chairman. So I, was, I said, okay. So Tim Boone wrote a letter to the board, blah, blah. And that's when stuff started happening. And I was playing at Worcester. Um, it was tea. And we heard that Neil Smith, Neil Smith, not David, oh, David Smith, David Smith, David Smith had resigned. The CEO had resigned. And the team said, right then, we're not going out after tea. We're on strike. And as a captain and as a leader, I had to say, don't be so stupid. You lot, concentrate on your cricket. Don't get involved in the politics. Me and um, Tim will sort it out. So, got the mark out on the part. We then heard that um, Tim Boone's going to get axed. And Tim Boone resigned and went off to the England under-19s. So, the two people that I went down to work for in the first place was Tim Boone and David Smith. And they'd both resigned. And I'm left without a head coach or a CEO. Um, I then... We had this big argument with Neil Davison. We won't go into the details, but I I went through to every single player in in Leicestershire on the Leicestershire books and asked about Neil Davison. And if I took my name off this letter, which was my name and Tim Boone's, Tim Boone had resigned, so it's just my name now. Um, things would go away, and, and I asked every single player, and they all wanted my name to stay on there. So I, as a captain said, right, the new lot, don't sign this piece of paper, and I'll leave it as my name, and I fought for, for my team. And I said, right, then that, my name represents everybody in this squad. And we we got into a, a situation that was nasty, um, and it ended up being me or him. And there was a, a recording of a, a set of messages that Neil sent to me that ultimately swayed it in my 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 favor yeah so you know um well we've got to say that it's, it's always very interesting you know to deal with like you know matthew hoggard the cricketer hugely talented hard trier um but then you finally i think landed on your feet haven't you you know i think uh you know you've got this new business venture our life after cricket Tell us more about, you know, your love for barbecue <laughs> and how did Hoggy's Grill, you know, wh who gave you the idea? Yeah, so Hoggy's Grill is a barbecue school where you can come and learn how to barbecue properly. Uh, as I say, my, my love for barbecues came about when I went to South Africa in 1994 um, and they call it Grey Flace and they cook on real wood, Camille Duran, um, a Mopani, a hardwood. And it all emanated from there. I loved my food anyway. I loved the fire. I loved being outside El Fresco around with the, a few beers with your mates around a fire cooking food. What a way to, to spend an evening. Um, so I'd always loved barbecues. I'd been lucky enough to tour the world, pick up little bits and bats here and there. And at the end of your career, it's a massive hole in your life. You've got to find something you're passionate about. Um I had fallen a little bit out of love with cricket, so I didn't want to go straight into coaching. Um, so I had to find something different. So I, I tried my hand at um, foreign currency. I found out I was at insurance. I coached the women's cricket team for a while. And 
somebody's flippantly, well, people kept on telling me, you need to find something that you're passionate about. And I flippantly said, like, eating and drinking. And they said, yes. And I went, oh, I should open a barbecue school. And that sort of, like, ignited the, the flame, so to speak. Um, and it, it, got, it was a little seed that was developed and growing, and now it's blossomed into a, a fully functioning barbecue school on the banks of Rutland Water, um, where I every time I go and stand in that place, I'm thinking, do you want him a happy place here? Well, I, I know you're very much in your happy place because you gave me a lowdown on diff- there's three different types of barbecues. Could you explain, <laughs> you know, the three different types that you have and, and that you sell? I oh, think there's only three different. There's loads of different types of barbecue, Monte. I was, I just give you the quick version, but <laughs> but, you, but you want the the versions of the gas ones, do you? Ah, but nah. So the three major ones are gas, charcoal, and wood. Um, but you, there's three people that buy barbecues normally. Well, people that will just come in and buy an instant barbecue don't want it for for too 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 long. And there'll be some people that will do the research and will know more about that barbecue than you and will spend a month's um, salary on that barbecue and will will have an idea of exactly what it's made out of, what is it capable of and what they're going to do with it. And then you get the knobheads. And the knobheads are the people that look over the fence and see what sort of barbecue next door neighbour is and buy a barbecue with more knobs than the next door neighbours. I love the last description. That, that I just wanted you to say that. I absolutely love that. So, you know, Hoggy Grills, the future of Hoggy Grills could be a possibility with the ashes coming up, a team up with Matthew Hayden, who loves his cooking and is a great chef. But he's given you some nightmares, you know, during the ashes tour. You had a, you, you had a horrific ashes tour and because of Matthew Hayden's blade. Can Thanks you, for that, Monty. Well, can you, can you see yourself, you know, working with him down under this, this winter? Um, can we just have a look in this pocket here? Because he might, he might have had the, the best of it in the early 2000s, but 2005, smack bang in this little pocket, thank you very much. So I've got my revenge. Um, but yeah, he's a great bloke. I, I, after the ashes in 2007, eight when we went back down, I asked him where I should go on holiday. And he said, I've got a holiday home. You should go, go stay there. And I, Pardon? And I was just thinking... He's the guy that we've had massive battles with and we've not really talked to each other. He was like, yeah, you can use my holiday home. And I didn't take him up because I found somewhere else that we went, but to, to offer his holiday home on an island just off Queensland, just it, and our love of food, I've spoken to him a few times, we've had podcasts, we've had video chats, we're working with some of the same brands. So, yeah, I, I can see myself working with him. And and where where do you think the Hoggy Hoggy's Grill you know will go in the next few years? You know, could we you know see it grow into a franchise? Um, there's so much you can do with this business. It's just I think I'm so glad that after what, ten years or maybe a few more years than that, you finally found a business adventure that you can actually just you know make it into a global brand. As you tried to tell me the other night, Monty, the the, the, the scope is massive. Um, but we'll start with UK domination, shall we? I want somebody to say, I need a barbecue. There's that fat old cricketer that sells barbecue. What's his name now? And gets on the website and, and comes up and buys a barbecue and has a class. class. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I think that's the first goal, um, obviously. Um, but like, you know, um, this Hoggy's Grills, um, being a cricketer who cooks, 
I think it's a very unique brand. I think I think that's what people are going to warm to. They're going to say, actually, we want to meet Hoggy and he's cooking us food. Yeah, until they meet me and then say, right, we never want to do that again. <laughs> but yeah, I've got to say the, the sport element, um, I was lucky enough to, to to play for England. So it's opened a lot of doors. So to get, you get to meet famous chefs, you get to get on to you. There's a lot of doors that open up just because of what you used to do, which is fantastic for me. And hopefully we can have a lot of fun by, and make some amazing food and make a successful business. Absolutely, and I, and I look forward to maybe bringing the well, helping you towards a vegan version. Um, but let's talk a bit about your son. He's thirteen. He's probably tall as you. Would you love him to become a cricketer? I want him to play golf. There's more money, uh, and I can carry for him. <laughs> <laughs> now you can. I gotta say, he's only thirteen. The world's his oyster. Uh, I encourage him to try everything he possibly can do work out at school and then he can decide when he's every every other week there's a different craze and a different fad that he wants to do and why say no he's, he's 13 and i just encourage him to to try to be as good as he can be at everything a final word you know on your wife sarah she supported you throughout your career yep she she probably had her tough times like you did how important is that a partnership you know in, in a marriage to help you through you know other ventures in life yeah massively uh, happy wife happy life eh? and that's the saying and i think it's very true and as you say this lockdown you, you well, we've spent so much time to, together and it's, just, it's it's been bliss it's been very happy and harmonious and it's just cemented our, our relationship well long may that continue and thank you so much for joining monty meets you know the podcast and i wish you all the best with your hoggies grills who knows we may even see matthew hayden and uh, Matthew Hoggard, um, both cooking down under. Yeah, that would be cool, wouldn't it? Throw another shrimp on the barbie. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Thank you, mate. Many thanks to the brilliant Matthew Hoggard for his time. And before we recorded, he did say he'll give us honest answers about his life, his cricket, where he's going, with his new venture, which has many miles, Hoggy Grills. Now next week, we have the South African warrior, Makaya Natini, all in one. And you are beginning to understand why we call it Monty's Meats. <laughs>